Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Father, as we come this morning, we lift up our thanksgiving to you. We give you all of the praise for the many good gifts that we have received from your hand. We give you thanks for the breath in our lungs and the life that you have graced us with. We give you thanks for the new life that we have received through Christ with the guarantee of the Spirit. We pray that this morning as we come and worship, as we pray together, as we sing together, and as we look at the Scriptures together, as we come to the table together, then all these things you would be present and active, that you would meet with us, uh, find us, uh, and transform us, help us um, to come to a place in our lives where we uh, know you more closely and are known by you um, more deeply and, and help us um, to be strengthened and equipped to live out of that identity um, in our daily lives. We love you so much. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. Amen. What do you want to be when you grow up? This is one of my favorite questions as a kid. It's so open-ended. There are so many possibilities. When you get older, the possibilities shrink a little bit. What do you want to be when you grow up? What age were you when you figured out that passion, what it was that you wanted to be when you grew up? Or maybe you haven't figured it out yet. That's okay. One of the things I've discovered as I've become an adult myself, is there are lots of adults who still don't quite know what they want to do when they want to grow up yet. Um, as a little kid, uh, a couple of things really fascinated me, and if I were to change vocations, uh, there'd be a couple different things I would look into immediately. Uh, a lot of you know about um, my fascination with the brain, um, but from a very early age, I also had a fascination with the ocean. Um, and if I had to restart things, perhaps in another life, I would have been a marine biologist. A lot of you know about my obsession with orca whales, but there's a larger foundation to that. Um, I think I love exploring um, open, fascinating things. And to me, the brain and the ocean are two of the most kind of unexplored, two of the, two of the things out there that we can find the most uh, new treasure um, in, in terms of science and discovery. Um, and so I grew up loving uh, Shamu, and then I saw Blackfish, and then I hated slash love Shamu, um, and have kind of continued that love uh, throughout my life. Um, but I wonder what, what it is that you find yourself passionate for. I wonder is what it is um, in your life that got you to that passion, where that story kind of took you. Um, we'll come back to that. I want us to turn to the book of Galatians, though. Um, we'll pick up in Galatians chapter 1 as we continue on in a sermon series we began last week in the book of Galatians. Um, we will finish out chapter 1 this morning. I don't want you to get too confident. We'll spend like nine months for the rest of the book. Uh, so trust me, we're not going too fast, but we will um, finish out the first chapter this morning. Um, and we remind us of what we saw when we started the chapter, started the book um, with the first chapter last week in the first nine verses. Um, Paul opens up to the Galatians, and some people have come into the churches in Galatia, churches that he started, and they have started to undercut the gospel that he preached. And so last week, Paul um, sets out to establish his authority and credentials and to warn the Galatians that any gospel other than the one that he preached to them 
was a distortion. And like all distortions of truth, it was dangerous. And in particular, we saw and will see throughout this study that um, the Galatians had been tempted by a distorted gospel that added to faith in Jesus and trust in the Holy Spirit, obedience to the Torah. So uh, adherence to the law of Moses, particularly the dietary kosher laws, and then um, circumcision. Um, We'll pick it up now in verse 10 as Paul continues on this theme. It reads like this. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? This is just right after he said, anybody who preaches differently than me can be cursed forever. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 10, he asked these rhetorical questions. Am I now trying to please man? And we have to do some mirror reading here. Uh, if you remember from last week, mirror reading is when we take what Paul's given us and we try to assume what must have been true on the ground based on what he's saying. And so when Paul says, am I trying to please man now? Most of us are pretty confident that this is what people were saying in Galatia, what these false teachers had come in and were saying to undercut Paul's authority. Um, basically, it goes something like this. The true gospel is that you have to start to follow Christ, place your faith in Christ, trust in the Holy Spirit, and become a Jewish convert. So start to follow these dietary, kosher laws, and get circumcised. And the claim was that Paul knew asking adult men to get circumcised and asking human beings to undergo these very strict dietary laws was a hard sell. And so he decided to make things easier. He was like a used car salesman, okay? He kind of zeroed in on what would really get his audience engaged. And so he said, hey, all you have to do to be a Christian is just place your faith in Jesus and trust in the Spirit, and he'll lead you to freedom. He'll lead you to holiness. And the, the Jewish Christian teachers had come in and said, maybe he was just trying to tickle your ears. Maybe he got you in the door, but now it's our job to really help you understand what it is to be a mature, really committed Christian. And Paul goes, do you think this is the game that I'm playing? Do you think I've ever really cared about what people have said about me or or whether I've been approved by men or not approved by men? Um, He he says, instead, I've gotten this from a direct revelation from Jesus. Paul will go out of his way um, throughout the book of Galatians. We'll see it this morning, just like we saw it last week. We'll see it in the weeks to come to establish his credentials and say, no one taught me. No one sent me. Um, I got the message that I got straight from Jesus Christ. Now, you and I are not big A apostles. Um, We're not the apostle Paul. Um, Sometimes Christian leaders or Christians, I think, take the wrong message from statements like this that they find in the New Testament. And so they think it's a virtue to be disliked by people, which I don't think is necessarily the case. I I do know of some Christians who kind of wear as a badge how many people hate them because of their faith. And there are many reasons that people might hate you. One is perhaps your faith, but perhaps you just have a personality disorder and you're obnoxious and annoying. You're rude. Um, Christian leaders sometimes take as a badge of faith that they're uneducated. No one has taught me this. I just kind of came up with this on my own. Um, This was true for the Apostle Paul. It probably shouldn't be true for you and I. The point Paul is making is not so much his independence from these human teachers. It's the direct revelation he received from Jesus. You and I sitting underneath Paul in terms of history, church authority, sitting underneath the canon, sitting underneath church history, you and I 
submit to the direct revelation to Christ that was given to Paul, that was given to the authors of the scripture, that's been given to the leaders of the church throughout history. Um, And there's nothing wrong with pleasing people, although all of us, I think, need to ask this question at different times. Am I doing things right now in order to plead people in my life, please them, or in order to win the approval of of God? There's a fine line there, although I don't think the two are necessarily always excluded. But Paul's drilling in this idea, this, this thought, this argument that he did not get the gospel from man. He wasn't sent by any man. This is what he said in verse 1. He's repeating it. Then in verse 13, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, this is not hyperbole. Paul did not like start a blog and try to light up Christians. He didn't start a podcast, okay, and, and, and just have some really hot takes on this new faith. He was actually killing um, these early followers of Christ. Um, if you are in your scriptures in front of you, if you, you have one open up in front of you, um, pay attention to that phrase in verse 13, my former life. The gospel for Paul, the gospel of Jesus, is different than man's gospel because it contains power. Man's gospel will always be empty and unable to transform. The gospel of Jesus for Paul, though, is inherently powerful. And one of the promises, one of the offers of the gospel is that your life currently does not have to be what it is. That your life right now can be your former life. They're going to be this, this radical new creation inside of you. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy them. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Hear him again pounding into this point. When Jesus revealed himself to me, when he gave me my purpose, I didn't go ask anybody. I didn't go consult with anybody. Nor, he says, did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. The fact that Paul says this and has to back it up with, in what I'm writing to you, I'm not lying, seems to suggest perhaps this was the claim that was being contested by these Jewish Christians who had come into the church in Galatia. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, where Paul is from, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Or as one church father said about this passage, the wolf is now acting like the shepherd. Paul, the wolf, now acting like the shepherd. In verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. So here's Paul's point to the churches in Galatia. The gospel I preach is a direct revelation from Jesus. I preach it not to please you or to please anybody else. And I wasn't given it by any human being. And particularly, I wasn't given it by the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church was like the motherland for early Christianity. Now, it doesn't stay there for all too long. But at the very beginning, remember, we're in very early Christianity. The center of the Christian faith is still located in Jerusalem. And what we think is happening is these Jewish Christian leaders have come saying the Jerusalem church has sent us to clean up some of Paul's work. 
And Paul's separating himself from the Jerusalem church in order to say, no, 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 they have no authority to clean it up. I got this apart from the Jerusalem church. Now, in as much as they affirm my gospel, that's great for them, but I could care less. Even if I preach a different gospel, even if I start changing my tune, let me be accursed, as he said in our previous passage. Now, I want to focus in here, though, on Paul's um, biography. Paul gives us his credentials. He tells us his spiritual story as a way of letting the Galatians know his credentials, letting the Galatians know why he's doing what he's doing today. And I think you and I as Christians could take a clue, could take a page from Paul's book in thinking about who we are, what the story of our life is, and where it's led us today to what our calling is from God. Paul says, you've heard of my former life. I persecuted the church of God. He was advancing in Judaism. And then very interestingly, in verse 15, he says, but he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to the Gentiles. A couple of very interesting things about this. Paul has this conviction that despite his past acts of sin and violence, that God had been waiting on him since he was born. That he had chosen Paul. That he had set him apart in the womb. Paul's echoing here um, verses from Psalm 139 about God intimately forming people, about God being involved in the personality that you have and the experiences that you have, and the hobbies that you have, and the passions that you have, about God being intimately involved in all of that. And I want you to um, just appreciate here for one second the patience that God has for his people. So often, I think one of the ways we get in trouble as Christians is we lose our patience. We lose our patience for ourselves, or we lose our patience for other people. One of the first things I teach pastors is, look, if it took you 10 years to learn this, don't expect people to learn it in 30 minutes. You can't get get frustrated with someone for not quite getting something that took you a long time to get. God has a very long curve with his people. And he had one with Paul. And when you and I compare our horror stories of our former lives, when you and I are racked with guilt or shame about what we've done, Paul, I think, wants to grab a beer with us and say, so what'd you do? You murdered someone, right? Like, no, we didn't murder someone. He's like, oh, what'd you do? Paul's like, I I was murdering people. I was murdering Christians. And yet I received God's grace. And yet he was waiting on me. And yet he endured all of that for the pleasure that he would feel when the sun was revealed to me. Always pay attention when the scriptures tell you what pleases God, what brings him that emotion of joy. And never doubt that the sun being revealed to a person or to a community is what brings God the Father joy. That's his eternal purpose, is reveal himself in the face of Jesus. And when that happened for Paul, everything changed. Paul was transformed, and Paul got a new commission. He got a new mission. This conversion story that Paul has, some wonder or contest whether it's accurately a conversion story, whether we should use that word conversion for it. At this point in time, there's no clear distinction, right, between Judaism and Christianity. It's two separate faiths. And so it's not as if Paul 
renounced one religion and started following another religion. Perhaps it's more like Paul received a commission on Damascus. He got new intel, that he had been going down the wrong path trying to please God, and that God was truly revealed in Jesus, and he had this new mission. And I wonder for you and I how much we would benefit if we spent more time developing our own spiritual autobiographies, thinking more about our conversions, thinking more about our former lives, thinking more about our calling. Paul was laser-focused in on what he was supposed to do in this world. I'm a preacher to the uncircumcised. I've been called to bring the good news of Jesus to those who are not Jewish, to the Gentiles. He had a very specific calling. And he's able to tell his biography. He's able to give his testimony with precision and accuracy and power. Um, There's a couple things that we can learn about conversions by looking at the work of sociologists, even just by observing scripture. One of the things that we learn is that when people convert to a faith, they often describe it in intellectual terms, as if it's a contest of ideas. I used to believe this, I saw that as deficient, and now I believe this. What people on the ground who study these things have observed is usually you give more credit to your intellectual efforts in terms of their influence on your conversion. Usually it's more about your social relationships. Um, When you look at a person or a community, if if you take a, a family and you see that most of their dominant social relationships that give them support and structure and meaning in life, most of those people follow this religion, adhere to this faith, there's a very high percentage that that person will one day also start to follow that religion, will also adhere to that faith. I don't think this is something that should scare us as Christians or should surprise us as Christians, particularly because of our call to be witnesses to the gospel. Not just to talk about the gospel, not just to say things about the gospel, but to actually like, be the gospel to other people, to actually embody good news to other people. And the truth that when we are faithful in embodying the gospel to other people, we can be trusting that God will work powerfully and bring those people into a saving faith of him. Our mission as Christians, our mission as the church, is to make disciples who follow after Jesus. And one of the ways we do that most effectively is not just in terms of intelligence, ideas, speaking. It's also in relationships. When we can come around people and show them the love of God, as well as tell them we can trust that God will work and work powerfully. The other thing we can notice about conversions, sociologists have seen this. You see this with Paul here. Um, The primary characteristic of someone who's converted to a religion is that they undergo a biographical reconstruction. They start to tell the story of their lives differently. They reorient the story of their lives around a new thing, a new person, a new event in their life. Before their conversion, their life was on this path. And then when this thing happened, these things changed, and now I am here. You might say to every spiritual biography, every conversion story, there's these three parts. You have a former life, maybe murdering people, maybe just being a churchgoer that wasn't really committed. You have a experience 
Maybe it's this dramatic one-moment experience like Paul. He gets blinded and kicked down to the dirt on the road to Damascus. Or maybe it's a long, drawn-out moment in time. Maybe it's a few years, a decade. And then you have a present calling. What all of that has led me to now. What it is that I've discerned God calling me to do and to be in this world now as a result of all of that. And I think you and I would benefit. I think it would be profitable for us to spend time thinking through this story. What would your life story be if you had never become a Christian? How do you think you you might tell your life story? How do you think it might be different than the way you perhaps would tell it now? In what ways has Christ made a difference for you? There's all kinds of interesting things. Um, You know, human beings are very interesting. One of my favorite things to do is just hear stories about human beings because humans are complex and mysterious and they change and they evolve and they have different opinions. I'd be interested for all of us to think about, you know, when did my idea of God start to develop into what it is now? At what age am I childhood or in my teen years or as an adult, did Christ become real to me in a way that perhaps he wasn't before? Maybe I wasn't religious at all, or maybe I'd grown up in the church, but then it kind of became more focused for me. I became more committed. What turning points in your life has Christ um, been an important factor for you, whether it's in joyful things or in um, moments of suffering? What ways is, is Christ affecting how you live on a daily basis? Is, is Christ um, impacting um, what it is you've chosen to do and to be? We ask kids this all the time. What do you want to be when you grow up? I think perhaps we should ask Christians this just as much. Not just what do you want to be when you grow up, but what is God calling you to do now? You see, for, for Paul, his conversion resulted in a complete commitment. I mean, he was sold out to the cause. But Paul was kind of always this way. Before Paul was a Christian, he was pedal to the metal, 100%. What can I do? Can I kill people? Let's do this. After he's a Christian, pedal to the metal. He's a type A perfectionist. Paul was just very high strung, we think. But Paul's commitment shows us something truthful about following Jesus. That to follow Jesus means to give up everything, means to go all in, means not to just half-heartedly drift about. Paul's conversion also shows us this experience of receiving a calling. For Paul, it was a very specific calling. And he held on to that. He grasped that. And he never deviated from that. And I would wonder what the calling is that you have received from Christ, what vocation you feel called to, what it is that you think God has prepared you for right now, to do and to be, to complete his will, to bring him glory, to bring praise to the church. I was on the suggestion of a friend spending this week, um, part of this week, writing out a spiritual autobiography. Um, And what I found was, it's true of all stories, which is the author of the story always has an angle, right? The details you pick, the way you choose to tell a story always has an angle. This is true of Paul. Paul will tell his biography in other places, and it'll look a little bit different than it looks here. He's got an angle here. His angle is to prove how independent he is of these other people. 
There are other angles that you can look, though, through your, your history. You can look at your former life, and you can look at all the ways that that was preparing you for what it is God's called you to now. Perhaps it's the skill sets that you picked up over time. Perhaps it's the um, contextual understanding, the empathy that you have for a certain situation. Perhaps it's the maturity that you've received um, through certain situations. Perhaps it's uh, education that you experience that allows you to function in certain aspects of society and culture. How God was shaping you, how he had chosen you, was waiting for you to... um, come to understand the revelation of Christ that has been given to us. Paul's calling was specific, and I think it's important for you and I to discern what it is that God has called us to do, to discern our, our gifts, our spiritual gifts. Here's what I know. God has not called you and I to be drifters. He's not called you and I to float through life. He's not called you and I to be unsure of what it is he wants us to do. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone's calling is as specific as Paul's, or as certain as Paul's, or as unchanging as Paul's. I am suggesting that every one of us in this room this morning has been tasked with a vocation. And not just a general vocation that applies to everyone, but a specific vocation. That there are specific things later today or this week, or this month, or this year that God has ideas about. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told God created us to accomplish these good works. He's had these, these good works in advance for us to complete. And it's the job of you and I to think, well, what is that calling? What is that vocation? For some of us, it's easier to come up with than others. For some of us, this changes over time, and that's okay. Perhaps God might have you in one situation for a while, and then another season of your life, he has you in another situation. How do we discern what God's will is for our lives? How do we come up with what it is that God has um, chosen for us to do, what calling he's given our lives? I think there's a, a few key things. One, I think you have to have an inner conviction of what it is that you've been called to. There has to be some sort of understanding between you and God on a personal level. You say, I understand, I feel led to, um, I've discerned um, a spiritual gifting towards this area of, of ministry. Maybe it's serving in the church somehow. Maybe it's serving the community in some way, picking up and advancing some social cause. Maybe it is just being a certain type of person for your family, being a certain type of person in the workplace. But you have to have this inner conviction, this inner sense of calling. And then the second equally important piece is you have to have the encouragement and discernment of your brothers and sisters, of the church, of church leaders and church friends. It's hugely important, I think, for you and I to ask other people, what do you think God has called me to do? What do you think God wants me to do right now? And then to run by your ideas about what God has called you to do with other people. Because you might hear this. You might hear, yeah, I think you're right. You really are gifted for that. Or you might hear, I'm not so sure. Maybe this is not what God has called you to do. 
when I first started preaching, I preached um, after uh, about a year in college um, and didn't particularly like it, didn't particularly think I was good at it, um, but got a little note from the pastor here at this church, Matt Rosine, I still have it, um, saying, you did such a great job, you're so gifted, I think God's calling you to do this. And here's what I can, I can tell you from personal experience. I would not be preaching today if it was not for a somewhat constant affirmation of that gift. And there's still days today where I don't particularly feel called and or particularly feel good at preaching. But by now I've got a fairly lengthy history to look back on of people in the church who I trust and respect and I don't think would lie to me saying, I think this is what God wants you to do. I wonder if you've had someone say that to you about something. I wonder if you've been able to say that, speak that kind of truth into someone else's life. Now that I'm older and and enjoying the maturity of my 30s, I've increasingly come to see one of the roles God has laid out for me in this manner, in terms of affirming other people's gifts, in terms of, of, of seeing someone able to do something through the power of the Spirit and isolating them and telling them, letting them know, I see this, I think this. I know what's going on in your world. I know what other influences you have, what other plans you have, but this is what I see and this is what I can affirm. When I, I, when I was younger, again, uh, I, w- I would go to a school and, and, sp- and speak. I'd go to like a chapel at a Christian school and, and give a sermon. And I would think that's why God had brought me to that school for the day, right? Because I've got a message. I need to give it to these students. Now, increasingly, I think that perhaps one of, if not the most important things that there is for me to do that day is to go find that kid who prayed before me or find the kid who was playing the drums in the worship band. And to go find them, isolate them, and say, hey, you have a gift. Hey, you should keep doing this. I don't know what the influences are in your life. I don't know what the plans you have are in your life. But this is what I'm seeing. This is what I want to affirm in your life. And equally true, although perhaps harder and perhaps um, it happens less, there are perhaps times when we need to tell people, I don't think so. Maybe someone's feels called to preach, and they give a couple sermons, and you're like, hey, can we talk? I'm not sure about this. Maybe someone wants to be a worship leader, and they sing once or twice, and you're like, hey, we're, we took a vote, and God does not want you to sing in front of microphones. That was personal experience. Those are two more public examples, right? But I think this is true of, or, uh, across the gamut of possible ways that the Spirit has gifted you and has called you to serve. I want to challenge you this week to, um, to think about your story. I want to challenge you this week to think about, to discern what it is God's called you to do right here, right now in the present. Do you have a good grasp on that? If so, I think it might be fruitful for you to share that with your friends and your family. Parents, if you haven't talked to your kids about your spiritual biography, if you haven't gone over when you converted, how you converted, why you have the faith you have now, I mean, that's a great conversation. That's an important part, I think, of spiritual development in the household. And if you have these um, vocations that you've discerned, and even better if you don't, having these conversations with your family or your friends, 
I think holds much benefit for you. It can be profitable for you. As you and I see Paul address the Galatians, as we observe his life story, his commitment, and his calling, I would invite you and I as fellow followers of Jesus to think through what our life story has been, what it is that we feel God is calling us to be and to do right now. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our time uh, together in worship. I thank you for the scriptures that you have given us. I thank you for the examples and the faith um, that we have throughout history and around us, even this morning, uh, to, to look at and observe, um, to follow and imitate. I pray that you would open up our eyes, first and foremost, to the revelation of your Son, that our faith and lives would be captivated by who Jesus is and what he's done. And I pray that you would open up our our ears as individuals and as a community to the discernment of your spirit, to the calling of your spirit, to the many ways in which you have brought us here today in this place, in this family, in this community, at this job, for a purpose, for a reason. Help us not only to be able to discern this, give us ears to hear, but also give us courage to obey, the strength to follow through on sometimes difficult um, tasks that you have laid in front of us. We thank you for the joy that we receive in knowing you and following you, and we pray that you would bless us as we keep up this effort. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit that all God's people prayed, saying, Amen.